I want to start our message today with a question. If someone was to come running up to you out of nowhere and say, what do I do to become a Christian? How can I be saved? What is the way to eternal life? What would you say? How would you answer that? Now I know this scenario is rare and in fact you may even have trouble imagining such a scenario but what would you say? We know as Christians don't we that this, this is the most important question anyone can ever ask. Certainly when we consider the consequences of someone dying in their sins. We want, don't we, to to see our church filled to the brim with the people of Eastbourne praising and worshipping the Lord just like he deserves. Christians, we are a people that that want to see God glorified. We want to see sinners forgiven in Christ and given new life. But how? It's become popular today to suggest that Anyone who shows even the slightest interest to quickly repeat a prayer or to go to the front in what is often referred to as an altar call. But is this biblical and is this what we should do? Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture where this exact scenario happened. When the man known as the rich young ruler approached Jesus and asked this exact question. So please turn with me to Mark's Gospel. We will be in chapter 10 and we'll be reading from verse 17 to 22. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 846. So that's Mark chapter 10 from verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, As we read this passage of scripture, does it surprise you? Why did Jesus just not reach out and pick what looked like such low-hanging fruit? In the corporate world, in sales, this would be known as a a red-hot lead or a qualified lead, ripe and ready. But as we scratch the surface, this isn't what's happening in our text this evening. This qualified lead isn't quite as qualified as he thinks he is. 
to qualify for the need of a physician, you must first know that you are sick. Who did Jesus say that he came to call? Mark chapter 2, verse 17, he answers that. Thankfully, Jesus came to call sinners. So let's go to our text. In verse 17, we read, As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up. So who is this man? We've already mentioned he's known as the young, rich ruler. And we should note that we we read about this man across all three of the Synoptic Gospels. We're reading Mark's account this evening, but this event is also recorded in Matthew chapter 19 and in chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel. And it's across these three accounts that we build up a really clear picture that this was a young man who was a ruler and he was extremely rich. In the eyes of the world, this would have been an impressive man. The sort of young wealthy man that might have been nominated for the, the Man of the Year award by Forbes magazine. He's the sort of man that knows exactly what he wants. We can see that here in how he, he gets straight to the point as he approaches Jesus. And, and often, as Christians, don't we, when we go out and speak to people about Christ, we're actually involved in something known as pre-evangelism. This is where we, we talk about all of that person's presuppositions that can be unhelpful to them here in the gospel. Things like, is the Bible really God's word? How can we trust the Bible? How do we know there is a God? Is there life after death? But none of that's needed here. With this young man, he knows that eternity exists and he wants to know how to inherit it. Here we read of him running to Jesus. Running. Running would lead us to believe that he was so enthusiastic, aware of his urgent need to secure eternal life. In verse 17, as he runs up to Jesus, he kneels down and asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here he comes, full of respect and honour, as he falls on his knees before Jesus. Look at how he addresses him. Jesus, good teacher. Now this doesn't seem to be some sort of flattery. This seems to be a deep respect. We know someone who held the office of teacher or rabbi in the Jewish community was considered one of the most distinguished and honourable persons in the community. And when we think of evangelism, we often think of the, the Christian being the proactive party. But here, the person seeking is proactive. Look at how this man has searched out Jesus. Christ's life, full of fruit. A holy life, credible, salt and light in an unsavory, dark world. He knew that this was the type of man that knew the way to eternal life. His life was so recognisably different that the man came running to him. So let me ask you this evening. Is your life so different? Does your Christian witness make you stand out like a, a sore thumb in such a way that people come and ask you questions like this? If you're a, a Christian here this evening or watching at home, does the hope that you have in Christ 
Does the joy that you have in Christ, do the trials you live through with faith in Christ shine such a bright light that people come to you and ask you such questions? Surely, someone that is filled with God's Spirit looks considerably different from someone that is not. Clearly recognisable as a follower of Christ. Now hear me right, not because of anything remarkable about themselves so that they should boast, but because God himself dwells within the Christian. Are you walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, or do you hide your light under a bowl? Does Christ show up in all parts of your life, at work, at home, with friends, through trials, on social media? Does it show up in how you choose to be entertained and how you spend your, your time and your money? Are you someone that people are likely to ask, how can I be saved? How do I inherit eternal life? And so it's with this great respect that this young man asked Jesus, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life. Look how Jesus responds. He answers his question with a question of his own. Verse 18. He says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what's happening here? Why didn't Jesus just tell him? Now, this isn't Jesus denying that he is the son of God or that he is indeed good. This man, the young rich ruler, thinks he's talking to just a teacher, a rabbi, a very respectable man. But he does not know that he is indeed talking to the son of God, God in the flesh. Why do you call me good? Here. Jesus was drawing out that this man had a, a superficial understanding of what good is, what goodness is. He was underlining the fact that men, which is what he thought Jesus was, are not good. Here we see that the young rich ruler's standard of what good is and what God's standard of what good is are an eternity apart. This here. This is the critical key to us understanding this passage. Words are important. Words have meaning. The word good. The word good is possibly the most misunderstood word in our world today. We know that, don't we? Ask anyone, are you a, a good person? You'll most likely get a strange look. And be told, of course I'm a good person. It's because we like to use a yardstick of who we think are really bad. Hitler, Saddam Hussein. And compared to them, we, we might be a lot less bad. But does that mean that we are good? John MacArthur picks up on this in his commentary on this passage. He says, quote, the world throughout its entire history has the wrong definition of good and that causes a serious, serious problem. So if the yardstick isn't measuring ourselves against the worst people that we can think of, 
what are we supposed to do? Are you good? Am I good? Can we ever be good enough? Well, what does the Bible mean by good? What is the Bible standard, the only definition that matters? What is good enough? Well, Jesus answers this by telling the inquirer of eternal life that only God is good. He tells him, doesn't he? No one is good except God alone. This means one thing. The standard is absolute sinless perfection. Does that sound like you? I know it doesn't sound like me. Not even close. But this can be confusing to us because look how we have lowered the effect of this word within the English language. If you was sitting a test and you got a good, I would have thought that would have been a five or a six out of ten. Seven or eight, very good. Nine or ten, outstanding. We use the word good almost with a a shrug of the shoulders, don't we? So with such a, a low benchmark, is it such a surprise that people in the world see themselves as good? The young rich ruler uses the word good really loosely, and that shouldn't surprise us, even more so in our generation today. We're living at a time where, where the words that we use and how people use them are changing. I'll give you an example. Growing up at secondary school, I remember a couple of years into my education and I, I started to really pick up on the way in which kids spoke back then. And I remember it driving my mum and dad mad. I used to come home and use words like bad and wicked for things that were supposed to be positive. You can imagine the confusion the first time I told my mum that her spaghetti bolognese was bad. And it's no different today. If you have young people in your family, you'll know that words like sick and crazy are words used to describe positive things. So we've got this redefining of words and how they are used going on, but something else is in play. How we have cheapened words by throwing them around far too loosely, just like this young, rich ruler. And as I was preparing for this message, I am absolutely convicted of my guilt in doing this. If you've spent any time around me, you will know that I'm prone to use hyperbolic words rooted in enthusiasm. Maybe you're the same. I must use the word great 500 times per day. The word awesome at least 50 times per day. But how many of these things that I've labelled great or good or awesome are truly great? God is awesome. The soup that I had for lunch was probably just tasty, but certainly not awesome. It's not for us to define or to, to change the meaning of words. As Christians, we want to know what it says in here. The word of God compared to what the Bible says. Are people good? Am I a good person? When we, when we look at the magnitude of the law and all of its implications and the fact that God looks at our hearts, we're not even close to being good. Not even for 30 seconds. No. Surely goodness is defined by the character of God. And when we judge ourselves against the standard and the righteousness of God, then we will understand why the psalmist and the apostle Paul says 
that there is none righteous. There is none who does good. No, not one. When we share the gospel, we talk about faith. And of course, that's crucial. As Christians, we're saved by faith alone. But here, Jesus is dealing with the other crucial aspect necessary for true faith. Repentance. To repent means to to change your mind, to change direction. This is where we go from having no faith in Christ to having true saving faith in Christ. From living a life in rebellion to God to living a life for God. Not perfect. Not to earn a reward, but out of a sense of wanting to honour him. To respond to what he has done in our lives by doing what pleases him. This often means, doesn't it? Smashing the idols that we have in our own lives. Things that we we have or do that we, we put before God and put in his place instead. A complete change, initiated and powered by the grace of God as he gives new birth, a new life in Christ. Repentance is necessary. You can't just add a little bit of Jesus to your life and then crack on where you were before, completely unaffected. He, the young rich ruler, and we need to know that we are not good. And there is no amount of works or religious activities that change that fact. And here, Christ goes straight to the point to challenge the sinner's sense of goodness. Why do you call me good? This was a question designed to ask him. Why are you using that word so casually? You don't know me or anything about me. And yet you call me good. And he takes that word and he puts it back exactly where it belongs. Chapter 10 verse 18. No one is good except God alone. This is what should change our definition of good. No one is good except God alone. John MacArthur says, this makes the word good absolute, not relative. Despite this man's pleading as he ticked through the law, it just shows that he had no real understanding of it. The law is given to reveal the the perfect holiness of God and our absolute inability to get anywhere near to living a life close to what it demands. The law reveals our sin. It's what makes it so sad as Jesus reminds him of it here. Here we see the young rich ruler begin to tick them off. Do not murder. Tick. Do not commit adultery. Tick. Do not steal. Tick. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Tick, tick, tick. He goes on to tell Jesus in verse 20, Good teacher, I've already done all of these things. Am I in? Do I have eternal life? It's obvious he knows that he doesn't. He has a lack of peace. He has no assurance. And why? Look at where his eyes are, directly on himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
In Matthew's account of this event, he records the man as saying, what am I lacking? His outward impressive works may have fooled other people and he may have even fooled himself, but Jesus knows his heart. It's not good. It's certainly not perfect. And he has an idol. He loves something more than God. His riches. Not only that, but this young rich ruler has some significant deficiencies in his understanding of the law and the gospel. We can see, can't we, that he, he sees the law as something to be accomplished, to be achieved, to be earned. He sees eternal life as his wages. Not something that would drive him to his knees in knowing the impossible task of trying to fulfill this himself. The law was to drive him to the gospel. To show his great need, his sin, and to expose any hope that he would have within himself. But what would the Apostle Paul want to say to this man? Maybe Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 come to mind. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is why Jesus, knowing this man's heart, knowing that he was self-righteous, knowing that he had a false confidence in his own goodness, knowing that he had an idol in his life, Jesus knew that all of this had to be confronted and dealt with through repentance before this man was ready to follow him. He needed to turn from this ungodly confidence within himself and turn to Christ. He needed to turn from loving his riches and instead love God. This man was given the choice between himself and Jesus. Between fulfillment now in the temporary things of this world, all of the things that his riches could buy him now, or fulfillment in Christ for eternity. Look how he responds. He's told, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He didn't even question it. He didn't argue. He just walked away. When the cost of following Jesus exposed his true love, his idol of money, he just walked away. His action revealed his heart. If we think of the parable of the sower, this man shows himself to be the soil sown among the thorns. I know this would be familiar with the Christianity Explored group yesterday. Mark chapter 4, verse 18. And these are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. The cost was too high even for eternal life. When the reality dawned of what true repentance looked like, he was gone. 
his low view of God's goodness, God's holiness, and an exalted opinion of his own righteousness was a recipe for disaster. He thought eternal life was something to be earned by being a good person. This is the gospel of our day, isn't it? It's what the typical man or woman in the street believes. The classic works-based gospel. A false belief that they will be rewarded with heaven because they are a good person. And it's a belief that will send countless people to an eternity in hell. And of course it appeals to the, to the proud, the self-righteous, and they suppress the truth, unwilling to repent and turn to Christ. And just like that, this young rich ruler is gone. Jesus' disciples were amazed as this man walked off. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And please, let us not miss the point if you're sitting here this evening or watching online and you yourself are not rich, please do not fade me out and think that this doesn't apply to you. This applies to every one of us. It isn't only easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The same is true of a poor person. The same is true of a liar, a thief, a kind little old lady, somebody that's been coming to church for 60 years, an evangelist, a pastor, with man, it is impossible. But, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And this, that is the answer to the rich young man's question. How do you inherit eternal life? If you've come here this evening or are at home watching online and you're asking this exact question, then this is how you inherit eternal life. You firstly recognise that the law of God is not something that can be achieved. You and I have already lived a far from good life and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. We are born in sin and our default position is hell, not heaven. It's with that posture that we come abandoning any hope that we have in ourselves of earning eternal life by our own good works. You recognise that that's impossible. We cannot rub out our sins or think that we can somehow work them off by being extra good. With man, it is impossible. But God, God has promised that he will not let the guilty go unpunished. He's a just God. 
He cannot and will not just wink at sin and turn a blind eye. But God, knowing this very thing, has made a way to pay for sin, to pay for your sin himself. One day, every single sin will be paid for. Either by you, if you are not in Christ, or it's already been paid for in full by Jesus for those that are his. This is why the gospel is such good news. This is an offer by God to take your guilt upon himself. This man, Jesus, the son of God that this young rich ruler approached, actually was a good man. He was a perfect man. And he came to this broken earth on a mission. To live a perfect life and then to to offer us his perfect life as a substitute for our sinful life. It is the greatest exchange. In going to the cross and bearing the wrath of God, he took the penalty of our sin. He paid the consequence of our sin so that those that put their trust in him through repentance and faith can be free from condemnation. Free from hell And not only that, those that are his are ushered into an eternal paradise. A new heaven and a new earth in the presence of Christ forever. No more sin. No more pain. No more sickness. No more wars. A perfect new world paid for, not by our works, but received as a free gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. By coming to him, completely empty-handed, knowing that we have nothing to offer and everything to gain. That is the way to inherit eternal life. Let's pray.